The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. Friends, if you have been tracking the news concerning the current crisis within the church, the past few months have likely been the occasion of disappointment, disgust, and anger, and perhaps you have been tempted to resentment, or have even experienced a deepening sadness. And I am sure that you must have realized that the recent months have been particularly difficult for me, first as a man, and then as a father, then as a Christian, and as a Catholic priest, and lastly, as the pastor into whose care you have been entrusted. If you have offered prayers to God for my spiritual well-being during this time, I want to thank you. And in the words of St. Paul, I want to beg you that you continue your prayers on my behalf and for those other priests who strive daily to be faithful to our holy vocation. Pray for your priests, for they watch as being to render an account of your souls, that they may do this with joy and not with grief. For we trust that we have a good conscience, being willing to behave ourselves well in all things. During this period, my mind has been given much to the question of how I might best care for you and guide you through these troubling times when, as Pope Benedict XVI said, the bark of Peter has taken on so much water as to be on the verge of capsizing. In the past few weeks, I have prayed much for you and I have tried to offer in fits and starts, based upon the sacred scriptures and our holy tradition, pointers towards a, way, a safe way forward. Most of these hints and suggestions have been directed toward our personal piety and have consisted largely in exhortations to diligence in our mutual efforts to know, love, and serve God in this life so that you and I might together one day enjoy the everlasting beatitude of the Blessed Trinity in the next. Today, however, I wish to set before you a deeper understanding of the crisis that now engulfs Holy Mother Church and to propose a way forward in the months and years that lay before us. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the teeth of the children are set on edge. In order to properly understand the current crisis in the Church, it is necessary that we first know and appreciate the spirit of Catholicism and know and appreciate what some have called the spirit of the Second Vatican Council and the relationship that exists between these spirits. Fundamental to the ethos and culture of the Catholic Church is the fact that it is set in opposition to the world. If the world hate you, know ye that it hath hated me before you. If you had been of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember my word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He that hateth me hateth my father also. But fundamental to the ethos and culture of the Second Vatican Council is an embrace of the world. Friends, at a time when the church and the world was being assaulted by socialist communism, one of the most dangerous ideologies in the histories of mankind, Pope John XXIII declared that the church would take a new course. To the conciliar fathers, he said, in these days, which mark the beginning of this Second Vatican Council, it is more obvious than ever before that the Lord's truth is indeed eternal. Human ideologies change, successive generations give rise to varying errors, and these often vanish as quickly as they come, 
like mist before the sun. The church has always opposed these errors and often condemned them with the utmost severity. Today, however, Christ's bride prefers the balm of mercy to the arm of severity. She believes that present needs are best served by explaining more fully the purport of her doctrines rather than by publishing condemnations. Then a little more than three years later, on December 7, 1965, in his address to the fathers of the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI, as he brought that council to a close, said, This council, which exposed itself to human judgment, insisted very much more upon this pleasant side of man rather than on his unpleasant one. Its attitude was very much and deliberately optimistic. A wave of affection and admiration flowed from the council over the modern world of humanity. Then Pope Paul VI added, instead of depressing diagnoses, encouraging remedies, instead of dire prognostics, messages of trust issued from the council to the present day world. The modern world's values were not only respected, he said, but honored, its efforts approved, its aspirations purified and blessed. Although it is exceedingly painful to say I have come to the realization that it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that this spirit of the council, with its opening to the so-called modern world, in ambiguous tests unlike any council it previously adopted, has caused a rupture within the church. Recognizing the problem with the council's apparent departure from Catholic tradition, Pope Benedict XVI himself made a valiant effort to propose what he called a hermeneutic of continuity or reform. That is, a way of interpreting the teachings of the Second Vatican Council so that they can be embraced together with the infallible teachings of the councils and popes which came before her. At this point, the thoughtful Catholic should ask himself, why should it be necessary to try to reconcile the teaching of one council with all other councils that came before it? This had never happened before in the history of the church. I have come to the realization that this effort can no longer be made with integrity. And this conclusion ought not to surprise me, you or anyone else. For Pope John XXIII said at the opening of the council, and Pope Paul VI reminded everyone at the council he was bringing to a close, that it was their express will to unleash a new spirit into the church by way of the council, a spirit which they each affirmed in their own way would be unlike the spirit of Catholicism which had preceded it. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. Dearest friends, the Baltimore Catechism, which was used to form the minds, hearts, and wills of Catholics in the United States of America and of English-speaking Catholics in many other countries, offers the following questions regarding the nature, purpose, and structure of the Catholic Church. Why did Jesus Christ found the Church? Jesus Christ founded the Church to bring all men to eternal salvation. 
How is the church enabled to lead men to salvation? The church is enabled to lead men to salvation by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, who gives it life. Who sent the Holy Ghost to dwell in the church? God the Father and God the Son sent the Holy Ghost to dwell in the church. What does the indwelling of the Holy Ghost enable the church to do? The indwelling of the Holy Ghost enables the church to teach, to sanctify, and to rule the faithful in the name of Christ. To whom did Christ give the power to teach, to sanctify, and rule the members of his church? Christ gave the power to teach, to sanctify, and to rule the members of his church to the apostles, the first bishops of the church. Did Christ give special power in his church to any one of the apostles? Christ gave special power in his church to St. Peter by making him the head of the apostles and the chief teacher and ruler of the entire church. Friends, the Catholic Church exists for a particular mission. The Catholic Church was founded by Christ for the salvation of souls. The Catholic Church exists to call all men to repent of sin, to abandon their false gods, and to offer meat and right worship to the only God, the living and the true, the Blessed Trinity. The Catholic Church exists to raise men of every tongue and tribe and nation to life through the sacrament of baptism, and so make them individually very members and corporate of the mystical body of Christ. The Catholic Church exists to nourish the divine life given in baptism through the sacraments entrusted to her alone so that all those baptized into her might live in and with and through Jesus Christ, and so both in this life and that which is to come, share in the life of the Blessed Trinity. Put another way, the Catholic Church exists to bring all men and every nation under the kingship of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. But friends, in the face of our Lord's clear teaching regarding the mission of the Church, the conciliar popes, the successors of Peter, have, in a way, repeated Peter's threefold denial of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth do I give unto you. First, in Paul the sixth, Peter said, The United Nations, not the Catholic Church, has the mission of bringing peace to the world. On the 4th of October in 1965, Pope Paul VI, speaking to and about a merely human organization, the United Nations, at its General Assembly, this pontiff declared that it was to them that the Church was entrusting world peace. On that occasion, Pope Paul VI said, Permit us to say that we have a message, and a happy one, to hand over to each one of you our message is meant to be, first of all, a solemn moral ratification of this lofty institution. And it comes from our experience of history. It is an, as an expert of humanity that we bring this organization the support and approval of our recent predecessors, that of the Catholic hierarchy and our own, convinced as we are that this organization represents the obligatory path of modern civilization and world peace. However, dear friends, only 40 years earlier, Pope Pius XI, observing the terrible state of the world between the two world wars, and in line with what the Church has always taught about her mission, said the following in his encyclical, Ubi Arcano Dei. 
The only remedy for such state of affairs is the peace of Christ, since the peace of Christ is the peace of God, which could not exist if it did not enjoin respectful law, order, and the rights of authority. He taught that Christ's doctrines which pertain to the peace of the world include the necessity and value of the spiritual life, on the dignity and sanctity of human life, on the duty of obedience, on the divine basis of human government, on the sacramental character of matrimony, and by consequence, the sanctity of family life. And Pius XI declared that these ideals and doctrines of Christ were confided by him to his church and to her alone for safekeeping. And that because the church alone possesses the power effectively to combat that materialistic philosophy which has already done and still threatens such tremendous harm to the home and to the state, the church alone can introduce into society and maintain therein the prestige of a true sound spiritualism, the spiritualism of Christianity, which is quite superior to any exclusively philosophical theory. The church is the teacher and an example of world goodwill for she is able to inculcate and develop in mankind the true spirit of brotherly love. Secondly, through Pope Paul VI, Peter denied his responsibility to rule and govern the church, an authority that Jesus Christ himself had entrusted to Peter. Peter neutralized the authority of the holy office. Peter refused to discipline wayward Catholic bishops, theologians, and seminary professors. Peter promoted an advanced clerics who openly denied the perennial and immutable truths of the faith, men who denied the divinity of Christ, men who denied the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, men who denied the unique saving power of Jesus Christ and the daily representation of this sacrifice made once for all on the cross of Calvary in the holy sacrifice of the mass, men who denied the divine origin of the church, men who deny the apostolic succession of the episcopacy, and men who deny the necessity of the ministerial priesthood of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, through Popes Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict XVI, Peter denied the Church's obligation to offer to no other God but the Blessed Trinity, our worship. Popes Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict the 16th, each visited and took part in services of prayer at the synagogue in Rome. By way of these visits, these three conciliar popes gave credence to the false notion that it is possible for a people to have access to God the Father, even though they have rejected his only begotten Son. He that believeth in the Son, says our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. He who honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father who hath sent him. And Pope John Paul II called for and led, and Pope Benedict XVI led subsequent Assisi days of prayer for world peace. At these events, prayers, animal sacrifices, and other offerings were made to false gods with Peter's blessing within the precincts of a church 
consecrated to the worship of the Blessed Trinity alone in three iconic actions, each taken by conciliar popes, Peter set aside the mandate given to him by our Lord Jesus Christ. In Pope Paul VI, Peter took off the papal tiara, I will not rule the Church of Jesus Christ. In Paul VI again, Peter returned the Islamic standard to the Muslims won by Our Lady at the Battle of Lepanto, I will not defend the Bride of Christ. In Pope John Paul II, Peter kissed the Quran. I will not honor the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. Friends, according to, the, to Pope Paul VI, the popes and conciliar fathers of the Second Vatican Council deliberately did not invoke the charism of infallibility. And on at least four occasions, he sought to make this fact clear. In his general audience of January 12, 1966, he said, there are those who ask what authority, what theological qualification the council intended to give to its teachings, knowing that it avoided issuing solemn dogmatic definitions backed by the church's infallible teaching authority. The answer is known by those who remember the conciliar declaration of March 6, 1964, repeated on November 16, 1964, in view of the pastoral nature of the council, it avoided proclaiming in an extraordinary manner any dogmas carrying the mark of infallibility. However, despite knowing well that he had deliberately continued a validly convened ecumenical council, but had deprived that council's documents of the protection of the Holy Ghost, Pope Paul VI nevertheless effected sweeping changes to the self-understanding of the Catholic Church, changes that touched every facet of the Church's life, its worship and its sacraments, its faith and its doctrine, and its moral life. Words are inadequate to convey the severity of this papal indiscretion, but no words are required because we now live in the wasteland of Pope Paul VI, indiscretion. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and the evil tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can an evil tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and shall be cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. Friends, in this gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ gave his disciples a practical means by which they could discern the character of institutions and actions. In giving us this guide, our Lord made it possible for us to test spirits. And so we ask, what are the fruit of the Second Vatican Council? Firstly, in the wake of the Council, the religious orders of the Catholic Church collapsed. More than 80,000 women religious forsake their vows. Secondly, in the wake of the Council, the ranks of the sacred priesthood of Jesus Christ was decimated. In excess of 32,000 priests almost immediately abandoned the priestly office. Subsequently, as the Church has tried to make peace with the world, priestly and religious vocations have continued to collapse. 
As of 2012, there were only 414,313 Catholic priests in the world, about 5,000 fewer priests than there were in 1970, even though the Catholic population of the world has doubled. So today, the Catholic Church has the equivalent of only 50% of the priests that she had in 1970. In 1965, there were 58,000 priests in the United States of America. Today, there are only 37,000. And more than half of those, that's 19,000 priests, will reach retirement age next year. Thirdly, in the wake of the councils, heresies that had been previously condemned have been allowed to run rampant throughout the church. And these heresies have been promoted by professors of Catholic theology and philosophy, theologians, priests, bishops, and yes, even cardinals. And now we are told from the Vatican itself that people living in adulterous second marriages can receive Holy Communion in certain cases, which is exactly the opposite of what Pope John Paul II taught when he insisted that it was intrinsically impossible to give Holy Communion to the divorced and remarried, because as the catechism that he published states, they are living public and permanent adultery. Fourthly, in the wake of the council, there arose a sharp decline in the obedience to the third commandment among the faithful, a disobedience accelerated by the substitution of what Cardinal Ratzinger has called a fabricated liturgy for the ancient Roman rite. With this wisdom to hand, it is possible to, for us to ask and answer the question, was the Second Vatican Council and the changes introduced into the Church in its name a good gift come down from the Father of the Heavenly Lights? Did our Lord Jesus Christ want his holy Catholic Church to follow the path set for her by the conciliar popes? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. In the early days of the Church, dear friends, the Holy Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, saying, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, and injustice of those men that detain the truth of God in injustice because that which is known of God is manifest in them, for God hath manifested unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power also and divinity, so that they are inexcusable, because that when they knew God, they had not glorified him as God or given thanks, but became vain in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened, for professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of the image of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed beasts, and of creeping things. Wherefore, God gave them up to the desires of their heart, unto uncleanness, to dishonor their own bodies among themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, the current corruption of the moral lives of the faithful and of the clergy, a corruption led and promoted by members of professional Catholic theological associations, priests and bishops alike, 
many of whom once vowed to firmly embrace and accept each and every definition that has been set forth and declared by the unerring teaching authority of the church, especially those principal truths which are directly opposed to the errors of this day. The current epidemic of fornication, adultery, and the acceptance of homosexuality as a moral good among the faithful and the clergy of the Catholic Church, and the current scourge of homosexual predation among the priests and bishops of the Catholic Church are the foreseeable and inevitable fruit of the conciliar Pope's decision to respect, honor, and approve the aspirations of modern man so-called to declare, pursue, and defend the exaltation of man in the temples of God. Each of the current crises in the Catholic Church are the direct result of the refusal of the conciliar popes to submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ. The Church is where she is today because in the conciliar popes, Peter chose to submit the Church's teaching to the judgment of modern man rather than to the judgment of Christ the King. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. Perhaps by now you are asking the question, is there anything that we can do in response to this unprecedented crisis in the Church of Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. Firstly, we can actively seek to restore the kingship of Jesus Christ in our personal lives, in society, and in the nations of the world. Our Lord Jesus Christ is king by right. Through his incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, assumed a human soul and a human body. Therefore, Jesus Christ is king because he is God. Consequently, the Church teaches us that by his incarnation, our Lord is Savior, priest, and king, not accidentally, but essentially. Our Lord Jesus Christ is also king by conquest. He has conquered us all by his blood, by his cross, by Calvary, and his conquest extends to all souls, to every family, to all schools, and the kingship of Jesus Christ extends to our professional lives to our laws, to our politics, and to the entire life of society. The restoration of all things in Christ of, in the nations of the world is the integral work of the Catholic Church. The restoration of all things in Christ within the Church is the integral work of the Catholic priesthood. The reestablishment of the kingship of Christ within society is the integral work of the members of Christ's holy Catholic Church. So what can we do? We can start by recognizing and submitting to the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we can make knowing Christ the King and his holy doctrine the chief priority of our lives. In these days, God hath spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. We can choose to be done with convenience Catholicism, we can find and attach ourselves and our families to a parish that offers the holy sacrifice of the Mass to God reverently. We can resolve to read only those theological and spiritual books that are faithful to the ancient faith, the perennial, unchangeable, and infallible teaching of Christ the King. We can choose to teach the true faith and only the true faith to our children. In this regard, a helpful rule of thumb would be to return to those theological and spiritual resources that were approved by the Holy See 
prior to the revolution of the 1960s. Put another way, we can make our Lord Jesus Christ the king of our intellect, of our thoughts, of our reflections, because he is the truth. And so I ask you, can you say that Christ the King is the king of your intellect? Can you say that Christ the King is the light of your mind? Thirdly, we can choose to conform ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ. Be not conformed to this world, but be reformed in the newness of your mind, that you may prove what is good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. Friends, in this passage, St. Paul teaches that our capacity to discern what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God is rooted in our deliberate effort to conform our minds to Christ. And so there are things that we must do. We must uproot and discard from our minds all personal opinions that are in conflict with the infallible and unchangeable teaching of Christ the King and his holy church. We must break all personal habits that are rooted in a carefree approach to the law of Christ the King. Today, Satan has arrayed himself, especially against the virtues of humility, purity, and modesty. We must examine our consciences, our entertainment habits, and our wardrobes. We must establish new priorities and habits of heart and mind and body that will ensure our continued growth and progress in holiness. Put another way, we must choose to attach our hearts to Christ the King. We must make Christ the King of our hearts. And so I ask you, does your heart love only those things that his kingly and sacred heart loves? Does your heart abhor the things that his kingly and sacred heart abhors? Fourthly, we can resist. I wonder, the apostle writes, that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, only there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Friends, the Holy Apostle warned us that from within the very bosom of the institutional church, false teachers of false gospels had arisen and would arise. And so with great solemnity, he declared, but though we or an angel from heaven preach a gospel to you besides that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Therefore, for the good of our souls, it is necessary that we respond faithfully to St. Paul's command. If we are to be saved, then it is imperative that we engage the war that is being waged both from outside and within the church. Put you on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the deceits of the devil, the apostle writes. How can we do this? We can begin by remembering Our Lady's warning given to Sister Sasagawa at Ak Akita in Japan. The work of the devil, she says, will infiltrate even into the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against bishops. The priests who venerate me will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. Churches and altars suck. The church will be full of those who accept compromises and the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. 
we can set ourselves like flint to become like St. Athanasius, who, when the earth was shaking under his feet, fixed his gaze upon the certainty that the church will remain unscathed from the ruin in which it finds itself today, because he was convinced that nobody can say and conjecture who or what will survive. Therefore, he said, we must in our counsel, in our recommendations, and in our worship, seek to impede the evil of this day by unveiling its signs. Let us then work while it is day, since at night nobody can work. It serves nothing to wait, dear friends. Waiting has done nothing more than aggravate things. We can choose to make our Lord Jesus Christ king of our wills. We can reject the sophism that says, I am personally opposed to this, but I will not impose my view on someone else. This sophism by which we have participated in the charade that our minds can give assent to a truth that we deny in practice with our wills. We must be done with it. We can conform our wills to his law, to his law of charity, to those two commandments through which all the commandments are fulfilled. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God for himself and love your neighbor for the sake of God. And Christ the King gave this law to us himself. Fifthly, we can enter into the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ and of his mystical body. If so, ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled and immovable from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which is preached in all the creation that is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up those things that are wanting of the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body, which is the church. Dear friends, we can choose to enter the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus Christ. We can enter into that garden with his mystical body. We can go to the pillar of scourging. We can endure the removal of his kingly robes and his crowning with thorns. We can accept the honor of suffering meekly with Christ Jesus, the taunts, insults, and injuries of Calvary. Finally, we can pray. We can pray that our Lord Jesus Christ, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Let thy will be done. We can ask Mary to call the successor of Peter and the successors of the apostles back to life under the sweet reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us remember what St. Lucia of Fatima said at, about the crisis we now witness. A time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be over marriage and the family. And those who will work for the good of the family will experience persecution and tribulation. But do not be afraid, because Our Lady has already crushed his head. So we can ask St. Joseph, patron saint of the family, for the conversion of the successor of Peter, that he might strengthen his venerable brethren once again under the sweet reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can ask Mary and Joseph to help us live under the same sweet reign of Christ the King. For we know and we hope that and those who are entrusted with the authority to rule and govern the church, we know that if we return to the obedience of faith,
we will someday be in this kingdom and we will see him in his splendor, in his glory. Dearest friends, we know that the church must pass through the passion and cross of Jesus on earth. We know too that one day we may partake in the glory of his resurrection. This is the glory which lights up heaven. This is the glory which is heaven, for God is heaven. Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, he is heaven. If we already have him as king here below, dear friends, then we will have him as king of glory for all eternity. So, dear friends, let us entreat the most blessed Virgin Mary and Saint Joseph, not only for ourselves, but also for our families, for all those who surround us, that they may come to the light of Christ the King, who know him but little, who do not obey him, who distance themselves from him, let us have pity on all those souls who do not know Christ the King, in whom we have the happiness to believe, whom we have the happiness to love. And so let us pray, Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on edge. So on this solemnity, I call upon you to stand and declare your allegiance to our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, Christus Rex, Christo Rei, long live Christ the King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, 